0: What would you say that life is about? and What do you expect from life? Just two small questions for this Sunday morning. Questions that we don't ask directly very often but we do live out the, whatever our answers are to those questions every moment of every day. I wonder what our lives say about our true answers to those questions. What would you say? That life was about? And what do you expect from life? Our passage today speaks to the heart of both of those questions. Those of you who were here a couple of weeks ago will remember that we're in a chapter where Jesus is sending out the 12 disciples to proclaim the kingdom of God in word and deed. They're being sent out by Him to share what he preaches and to do what he does. I do encourage you to have Matthew 10 open in front of you and we'll be referring kind of back and forth to it during my sermon. Towards the end of the passage that we looked at the other week, the first half of chapter 10, Jesus let them know that their experience of being on mission won't be without hardship and persecution in the same way that his life wasn't without hardship and persecution. And our passage today continues on with that theme. One of my most precious moments of the last week reminded me of this passage and how I reckon it must have been for Jesus as he was sending out the disciples. We're in a board meeting for the Common, the church plant that James leads. There are so many excellent things happening through the Common, as those of you who were here last week will have heard. We were speaking about those, but then James shared that in the midst of these great things and people coming to faith, there was also opposition happening. At that point, James became quite cheery and shared that he feels that he's sending out people to meet with opposition. His heart was aching at that. There was no sense of therefore not wanting to send people out or regressing sending them out As most of you who know James will know that that wouldn't be the case. But there was agony and sadness. That he's encouraging people to go out to do something that he knows they'll experience opposition for and where they'll experience hardship. And when he sees that happening, he's grieved. I imagine that was also the case for Jesus as he said the things that he said to his disciples. But James isn't surprised. He knows well enough that this is the path of discipleship. That this is what Jesus tells us will happen to his followers. That this is what will happen as people step out on mission. That Jesus' followers will happen to, have happened to them what happened to him. We're not above our master. And if people insulted him, why would we expect that we won't be insulted too. It's in this context that our passage then moves on to speak about fear, or more to the point, about not fearing. Did you know that the most often command in the Bible is to not be afraid? How relevant is that in today's age? But clearly in this context, and many others, it's not to not be afraid because nothing bad will happen. In fact, these are statements about not being afraid, spoken in a passage about hardship and persecutions that will come. So what basis does Jesus give the disciples and us to not be afraid? There's three specific ones here. The first is in verse 26 and 27. So have no fear of them. For nothing is covered up that will not be uncovered, and nothing secret that will not become known. What I say to you in the dark, tell in the light, and what you hear whispered, proclaim from the housetops. Jesus is saying, don't be afraid, because I will vindicate you. When you proclaim me and you are persecuted, know that in the long run you will be vindicated by me. The second basis um, that Jesus gives is in verse 28. Do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. So don't be afraid of those who can kill the body. Fear God, the one who ultimately matters. the third basis is in verse 29 to 31 are not two sparrows sold for a penny yet not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father and even the hairs of your head are all counted so do not be afraid you are of more value than many sparrows here Jesus is saying that God cares and knows about the minutest things like sparrows and the hairs on our head and so Jesus instructs us to not be afraid affirming our value to the Father so in the passage in the context of hardship and persecution Jesus is urging his disciples and us not to be afraid because the truth will win the day the disciples will be vindicated because the things that happen might kill the body but can't kill the soul, and because the Father cares about them deeply and affirms their value. What an encouragement to us. In situations of opposition, like the ones that James and the common board were talking about the other night, or any other hardship, what an encouragement to not be afraid. Not thinking that hardship won't happen, but being able to trust that God our Father has us in his hands, and that will ultimately be okay. Passage continues on with Jesus saying that he came not to bring peace on earth, but a sword. What? Don't we often concentrate, particularly at Christmas, on Jesus coming to bring peace on earth? Think of those Christmas cards with peace on earth on the front of them. But here we have Jesus saying, that he didn't come to bring peace on earth. How do we reconcile that? Jesus did come to enable us to have peace with God, that people might be made right with God, that the world might be made right, and therefore no peace. So in that sense, Jesus came to bring peace on earth. But Jesus also recognises that his coming brings division because many won't acknowledge his kingship. And as he's already said in this passage, as it is for Jesus, so it is for his followers. Acknowledging Jesus' kingship will bring division in all sorts of relationships, including the closest ones like family. In this context, Jesus then reinforces the need to take up our cross and follow him. And states that those who find their life will lose it and that those who lose their life for his sake will find it. Words that many of us are really familiar with. He doesn't back away from the fact that allegiance to him will bring division. And in that context, he states the degree of cost that will be required for those who would follow him. It's a cost that's prepared to lose your life, to go to the ultimate end, like Jesus, of taking up our cross. We're so used to those words that I think they lose their meaning on us often. To the people that Jesus said them to, they would have had images of a person picking up the instrument of their execution after they'd had a trial and been beaten and facing the exceptional mocking of the crowd that's the kind of thing Jesus is saying here choose to take up the thing on which you'll be killed expect the mocking of the crowd even some of those closest to you and in doing that in losing your life for my sake you'll find it incredibly countercultural words for us today both as well as in those days as well so countercultural that I reckon we have trouble getting our heads around it, let alone living it out. Our culture is so on about self fulfillment, um, particularly as we, for some of the people who are younger, about finding ourselves, um, that the idea that it's not seeking our fulfillment but in dying to ourselves that we find life is a completely foreign concept. But Jesus says that we need to take up our cross and follow him, that we need to lose our life for his sake. And he says it in the context of being prepared to die to our love of the things that are most important to us. In this passage, it's the love of our parents something that the Bible's very clear is a good thing, that's the thing that he's indicating that his followers need to be prepared to die to if it gets in the way of allegiance to him. We need to be prepared to die to our attachment to the good things that God gives us if they threaten his place as king in our lives. But it's not all about the hardship and persecution that Jesus' followers would receive and the need to take up their cross and follow him. There's lots more of a positive spin in this passage as well. The life and the welcome that comes as people acknowledge Jesus before others, as they die to themselves, and as people welcome those that Jesus has sent. Verse 32 Everyone, therefore, who acknowledges me before others, I also will acknowledge before my Father in heaven. Verse 39, those who lose their life for my sake will find it. Verse 40 and 41, whoever welcomes you welcomes me, and whoever welcomes me welcomes the one who sent me. Whoever welcomes a prophet in the name of a prophet will receive a prophet's reward. And whoever welcomes a righteous person in the name of a righteous person will receive the reward of the righteous. It's all an affirmation that as you put Jesus as king, as the centre of your life, you'll have the things that are most important to you now and into the future. You'll have Jesus' acknowledgement before his father. You'll receive the reward of the righteous. You'll find life reminds me of a verse that I remember because one of my youth leaders gave it to me on a card to put in my purse when I was in year 10. Romans chapter 10, verse 9. If you confess with your lips that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. If we acknowledge with our words and our lives that Jesus is Lord and King, we will be saved we will have life. That's good news. Sobering, though, that verse 33 of Matthew 10 also says, whoever denies me before others, I also will deny before my Father in heaven. This whole passage, implicitly and explicitly, indicates that there are people who will not respond to the message that the disciples will bring positively. And it's clear that for those who don't acknowledge Jesus' kingship, there will be consequences of not being acknowledged by Jesus before the Father. The passage ends with a focus on the people who will receive the disciples' message, though. They were told earlier on in Jesus' instruction that we looked at um, a couple of weeks ago, that as they went out, they were to look for people who received them and welcomed their message. And at the end, we read about what will happen for those who welcome them. Those who welcome them, that is, those who receive them and their message about the kingdom of God, welcome Jesus, and whoever welcomes Jesus welcomes the one who sent him and will be received and welcomed by Jesus before the Father. That's good news at the end of this mission commissioning. Though there will be persecution and hardship, those who receive the message of Jesus through the disciples and through us will be saved. I want to take us back to the questions I asked at the beginning. What would you say that life was about and what do you expect from life? I wonder how considering this passage has impacted your answers to those questions. Do you expect life to be easy and smooth? Do you live as though life is about your fulfilment and happiness? You'd not be alone if your honest answer to those questions is yes, at least some of the time and in some ways. But Jesus tells us to expect persecution and hardship as we follow him and he calls us to live with him in the centre and not our own fulfilment and happiness. So as I finish today, I encourage us to particularly remember a few things. Firstly, in this mission commissioning briefing, Jesus says that his followers will indeed follow in his path of receiving hardship and persecution as they follow him. That as they live with him as king, that others will not welcome them or their message and that this will bring division at times. As it was for Jesus and the disciples, so it will be for us today. Secondly, Jesus is serious when he calls us to live with him as king. He calls us to die to ourselves and to put him first, even and especially in the places that are most precious to us. He calls us to love him above all else and to seek his kingdom, trusting that true life will come from that. And he calls us to acknowledge him as king in our words and actions. He calls for our absolute allegiance. He also commands us to not be afraid. Whatever is happening, he is trustworthy. That doesn't mean that there won't be hardship, but it does mean that it's not ultimate, that it can't kill what's most important to us. And we cannot be afraid because he knows and cares. And finally, let's remember that this king that we follow is the one who came to die that we might know life, that he took up his cross for our sake and that because of that, we can know life. As we confess him as Saviour and Lord, we are saved. And that's good news. Amen.